you would, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we continue in our study of the pastoral epistles. And tonight we'll be looking specifically at verse 17. But in order for us to understand verse 17, we need to revisit verses 12 through 16 in our reading of it. I actually remember seeing that I was slated to preach just one verse, and my initial thought was, are we serious? I'm going to preach one verse. What in the world am I going to say about one verse? But mostly I was just concerned that I'd end up doing some sort of theological word study. That looking at this one verse, I'm going to find different words and go, okay, let's talk about God's invisibility and immortality, etc., etc. I was concerned that we'd end up doing some word study and losing sight of the very clear flow of Paul's logic up to this point in the letter. Mitch, maybe in other settings it'd be entirely appropriate that we do a theological word setting, but it didn't feel right for preaching. But as I studied and thought more about it, I realized that it is entirely appropriate that we do just this one verse. I couldn't be concerned with detracting from the flow of Paul's logic up to this point in the letter because Paul himself detracts from the flow of his logic. Paul himself halts the entire flow of what it is that he's trying to say to erupt with this doxology that we find in 1 Timothy 1.17. And if Paul was eager to do it, then so should we be. I was actually told later on that I was allowed to take on more verses if I wanted to, as the schedule that we had in place was more of a suggestion. But I was already too excited to look at this verse together. Because what's happening in this one verse is so significant for the Christian life. And I think so often missed. So much so that I was eager to give it the attention that I think that it deserves. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. But we'll start with our reading in verse 12. We'll read it together and then I'll pray. Hear now from the word of the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, there is none like you in heaven above or on earth below. For you alone are God, the creator and sustainer of all things, And to you alone belongs all glory, honor, majesty, and dominion. We thank you for this Lord's Day and the privilege we have to come together, to sit under your word, to sing, and to pray together. We thank you for your Son, whom you've given to us in the abundance of your steadfast love and mercy. 
We ask that you would bless the preaching of the word, that your name would be exalted in our midst, and that you would cause us to know the privilege of adoption, of sonship, and of communion with the only God. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, last week, or two weeks ago, rather, Jason already dealt with verses 12 through 16. So I don't intend to spend a lot of time dealing with that text. But even as we've read it again, even a plain reading reminds us of what glorious grace has been poured out for the Apostle Paul. What glorious grace has been poured out for sinners at the cross. It says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so then Paul breaks out in doxology, but before that, he's reveling in the salvation that he knows in Christ, according to the grace, mercy, and patience of God. And then, in the middle of his train of thought, obviously making a significant point with a purpose in verses 12 through 16, he interrupts his flow of logic. He interrupts himself with doxology, such that it was as though he couldn't contain what affections he was feeling in his own heart with regard to what he had just said about God and what he'd done for him in Christ. And it's the doxology that's very similar to the one that comes later in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. But other than that, it's somewhat dissimilar to every other New Testament doxology. Most New Testament doxologies will come at the beginning or the end of a letter, at the beginning, it may be just sort of an introductory thought like this. Here's a sort of a general greeting. And now let's praise the God from whom all blessings flow. And then they tend to be very general, like we might find in first Peter chapter five, verse 11. And it just says to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or they're like this one, an interruption in the author's thinking as he responds to the thing that he just got done writing. But what happens more often is that a doxology is clearly related to what was just laid out before it, like in Romans chapter 11. After Paul deals with the mystery of Israel's salvation, he breaks out in doxology by saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In Romans 11, after considering this mystery that is Israel's salvation in the preceding verses, he responds by magnifying the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's clear that there's a distinct connection or an explicit connection with what was just said and how he breaks out into praise. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, after the beautiful prayer, Paul prays for the spiritual strength of the church. He responds with a doxology that reflects the abundance of God's providence, implying that we ought to trust God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. But in 1 Timothy 1.17, it's not as clear. What sets this doxology apart, and the one very similar to it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, is that it uses such transcendent language. It's actually, it might be a little strange at first glance. You might wonder why Paul doesn't respond to the incredible grace, 
the personal, imminent grace that he just wrote about in verses 12 through 16 with a very personal doxology, reflecting that immeasurable grace, something like, to the God of all grace, mercy, of patience, of tenderness, of steadfast love, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But that's not what he says. Instead, he highlights the eternal kingship, the immortality and invisibility of the only God. That's the God who deserves all glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. He highlights the transcendence of God, those attributes of God that we can have no full comprehension of because he's beyond measure. And for a good portion of my own study, I could not understand why Paul didn't burst out with explicit praise for his personal grace until I realized that this is actually a beautiful and appropriate response to God's grace and mercy towards him. In fact, Paul's outburst of praise to God for his saving grace is so great that he can't help but think of the Lord's transcendent glory when he considers his imminent personal grace. And that's exactly what I want us to see tonight. Tonight, the aim is simple. I want us to see that Paul's transcendent doxology is the most appropriate response to God's imminent grace. And we'll see that in two basic points, two simple points. The first is the transcendent glory of the eternal king. The transcendent glory of the eternal king. And the second is the aim of his redemptive work. So look with me again at verse 17 as we consider our first point, the transcendent glory of the eternal king. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is the only time that the language king of the ages, as we translate it, is used in the New Testament. But it's not as though the kingship of God is some foreign concept. The kingdom of God is a major theme of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Though that's true, God is not often referred to explicitly as king in the New Testament. But it's certainly not uncommon in the Old Testament, and it's certainly not foreign to Paul. As Paul thinks about his own salvation, he's swept away in praise of the eternal king who is Lord of heaven and earth. The one who has loved him with an everlasting love is the everlasting God who was and is and is to come. Paul knows that his Savior has brought him near to the unchanging God who transcends time and space. It's possible that he utilizes more common Old Testament language to emphasize the faithfulness of the God of the promises, of the prophecies, the sacrifices, of circumcision, and the Paschal Lamb. That when he thinks about his own salvation, he thinks about the God who had promised a Savior all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The unchangeable God, the one in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. The one who keeps his promises because he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But to highlight his eternal kingship was not enough. He continues to highlight his transcendent attributes of immortality and invisibility. I mentioned that this doxology is one 
of two. It has a counterpart, and only one counterpart in all the New Testament, in the very same letter. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verses 15b and 16, if you will. Starting with the second half of 15, he says this, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. So Paul picks up the same themes in his first doxology, and then further expounds them here in chapter 6. He is the only immortal God. His invisibility consists in dwelling in an unapproachable light, such that no man has seen or can see him and live. He, that God, is due honor and eternal dominion. It's all really an astounding reality for Paul. Because that God, that's the God who showed him personal grace. That's the God who is drawn near to him in the person and work of Christ. He's the God who saved him. Again, Paul can't think about personal grace without thinking about God's transcendent glory. To see and recall God's grace to him produce an immediate return to the wonder and amazement of the God who poured out that grace. It was the providence of God, I think, that we looked at Psalm 57 this morning a psalm with rich, exalting language. And remember, in verse 8, it said, Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. In verse 11, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. The psalmist's delight is to see and to know the glory of the only Sovereign. He cannot separate what God is from what God has done. He can't separate who God is in and of himself from his providential working in all of creation. Back to 1 Timothy 1.17. Listen to Jonathan Edwards reflecting on our verse tonight. 1 Timothy 1.17. Jonathan Edwards says this. As I read the words... There came into my soul, and as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to God in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him. Oh, that we would be a people that exult in the king of the ages in the same awe and wonder that we see displayed here in Paul. The same awe and wonder that we read about as Jonathan Edwards reflected on this text. There's a reason. When we break up into our prayer groups at the end of every evening service, we begin our time of prayer in adoration, in admiration. And here's the thing. That part shouldn't be awkward for you. It shouldn't be. But I know that it is for some of us. 
I know from personal experience, because I even remember when I first started to pray through the Psalms, or when I first started to see the pattern of prayer for so many faithful people throughout church history, that the pattern of their prayer consisted of prayers of adoration, and I didn't know how to do it. It felt weird. But the only reason for that is that I was well-versed in giving thanks to God for what he has done, but I wasn't particularly accustomed to giving thanks to God for who he is in and of himself. It was just strange to me. But I, I want to remind you of something. The God who is worthy of all honor and glory forever and ever is worthy of such honor and glory irrespective of his actions towards you. He is worthy because of who he is in and of himself. He is alone the eternal, immortal, invisible God, whether he has created and redeemed you or not. He is the everlasting God who has eternally existed in perfection and self-sufficiency. He didn't become these things after having made you or after having saved you. And if your mouth were to never open again, the very rocks would cry out, Glory and honor and majesty and dominion are yours forever and ever, O God. Because of who he is in and of himself. This is why Paul praises him. This is why Paul bursts forth in doxology when he considers such personal grace as his own salvation. Listen also to the 17th century Puritan Stephen Charnock as he deals with this text in his existence and attributes of God, which is a wonderful book, by the way. Stephen Charnock says this, The meditation of God's converting grace ravished the apostle's heart, but not without the triumphant consideration of his immortality and eternity, which are the principal parts of the doxology. We owe him a love for what he is in himself and more for what he is than what he is to us. He is more worthy of our affections because he is the eternal God than because he is our creator. Because he is more excellent in his nature than in his transient actions. The beams of his goodness to us are to direct our thoughts and affections to him. Did you hear that? The beams of his goodness to us are to direct our thoughts and affections to him. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He sees the beams of God's goodness towards him and it is immediately directed in thought and affection to the king of the ages, the immortal, invisible, only God, the one to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Much like a shadow cast on the ground should direct our attention to the substance producing that shadow, so too are God's works to be a means of drawing our gaze and affection to him. But because I want you to see the appropriateness, again, that's the main push of tonight's lesson. Because I want you to see the appropriateness of Paul's transcendent doxology when he considers God's imminent grace, let's reflect again on that imminent grace in the second point which is the aim of God's redemptive work. Having in mind this eternal, immortal, invisible king of the ages to whom belongs glory and honor forever, look back with me again at 1 Timothy 1, 
in verses 12 through 16. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, I know that I don't need to remind you of the infinite chasm that exists between sinful humanity and the perfect holiness of the God of the universe. But nonetheless, it is so vital to a proper understanding of the extent of God's redeeming grace to know what depths we have been brought from by the mighty hand of God. Remember the language in Ephesians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but Paul reminds us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that we're children of wrath. We, with Paul, were all treasonous blasphemers, an insolent opponent, enemies of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as far as it depends on us, we would remain in that state forever. But as far back as the problem of sin was introduced in the garden, the saving purposes of God to ransom his people from sin, death, and the devil was introduced. And thus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The God who did not need you for his own perfect happiness and self-sufficiency has set his hand to redeem you and in faithfulness will accomplish all that he has set out to do in the person and work of his son and by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. This is certainly the most personal joy that Paul could know. The most personal joy that Paul could exult in. His own personal salvation was an astounding example to all of the world that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. He is the example to show the world that there is no sinner beyond the saving power of Christ. But this doesn't quite get at the aim of God's redemptive work. And this is exactly where I think most Christians often stray. Because we are ready to rejoice in what we've been saved from. We're happy to talk about having, our, having been saved from the wrath of God for sin and eternal punishment in hell. But what have we been saved to? Is it temporal joy and earthly pleasure? Is it your comfort? Is it prosperity in life? Is it that you won't have to face any difficulties or sufferings because God has saved you and therefore everything should just be peachy and perfect? Or is it just the idea that we will know an eternal joy in the new heavens and the new earth and that we will have every tear from our eyes wiped away, living forever in a better place? Is it just that? You might think, did, did he really say just with respect to our heavenly dwelling? 
as though that's not a big deal, just saved, that we might enjoy heaven? Yes, I did just say that. But not because it isn't a big deal, because it is, but because I wonder how often we're so sidetracked by the perfection of the dwelling that we lose sight of the one who dwells there. We're so often distracted by the relief that we may know in eternity that we lose sight of the fact that God is the reason that we want heaven. The presence of the Almighty, the King of the ages, the immortal, invisible, only God is the reason that we would want heaven. This is why Paul is so astounded when he thinks about his personal grace that he breaks forth in this transcendent doxology. That grace that he just got done talking about was the grace that brought him near to the throne on which sits the eternal king. He's not thrilled by grace for grace's sake alone, like we might be when we get a gift from a loved one. When we get a gift from someone, we often make comments about how thoughtful it was that someone had purchased this for us or made this for us or whatever it may be. Or if the gift isn't particularly good, we say things like it's the thought that counts. But in most cases, we're really thankful that someone was thoughtful enough to get us something, was kind enough to consider it enough to buy us a gift. But Paul's not praising God for having kind thoughts towards him. He's praising him because he knows the glory of the gift itself. He's praising him because he knows that in Christ he has received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ he has received access to the throne of grace. He has sonship. He has reconciliation. He has communion with God. The gift is the giver himself. Think about that for a second. The gift is the giver himself. God's grace towards Paul doesn't detract from the splendor and majesty of the God of all grace. Instead, it increases it when he thinks about it. It increases his own understanding, his own awe and amazement at the God who was and is and is to come. Paul responds with transcendent doxology because he realizes that this eternal king is mine and I am his. God's grace toward him filled him with resplendent awe of his glorious attributes. I've referenced it not long ago in another sermon, but it's too fitting of a text to ignore, and it's become one of my favorites. But Psalm 73 verse 25 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Listen, if you should gain heaven and all of its created glory, and all of its perfections that you might know there, and not have the one to whom the glory belongs, you gain nothing. You gain nothing. The grace of God should drive us to behold the splendor of God himself, because the aim of our salvation is actually bigger than just our personal experience. We can even see Paul displaying this sort of humble focus in the glory of him who has called him in 1 Timothy 1.16. Look there again. It says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is joyful to know the scope of God's saving purposes. And that he is but a fragment in the mosaic that is God's sovereign plan to draw his people to himself. And what he says may seem odd to some people. For some, it almost seems that it might be diminishing Paul's own personal love and thankfulness for what God has done for him as an individual. To think of Paul's salvation as a means to another end seems a little strange. That he received mercy was to show God's patience to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Like, what is Paul? Is he just some sort of tool? Isn't Paul saved because God has loved him from before the foundation of the world? Ephesians chapter 1. Yes, absolutely he is. But Paul understands something about God's saving purposes that transcends his own personal experience. It's bigger than him. While Paul certainly rejoices in his personal subjective experience of saving grace, he also rejoices in the saving power of God to draw all people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. Because he understands that his salvation, that salvation in general, God's redemptive work has both a personal and a cosmic dimension to it. His salvation is both a personal joy and a revelation of the glory of the God who saved him. A revelation of the glory of God to the nations. Having received mercy, he now has the God of mercy. So it's no strange thing that Paul can rejoice in the glory of God made manifest in gathering the nations because God's glory is to be his greatest joy. He understands that his greatest gift is to behold the glory of God, walking in his ways and enjoying him forever. So let me begin to conclude by simply reiterating the main point. We have one verse, and I'm not ashamed that my sermon is short tonight, because I want you to know this. I want you to understand this, and I want this to be the thing that you think about when you go home tonight. Paul's response to grace, to personal grace, with transcendent doxology is entirely appropriate because he understands who has saved him and what he's been saved to. The king of the ages the ancient of days, the eternally existing, self-sufficient, triune God. That God has poured out his mercy upon him. That God has called him a son because of Christ who died in our place, bearing the full weight of God's wrath for sin as the ransom for sinners who fulfills all righteousness for us and conquered sin and death and by whom we have adoption, he has granted us access to the throne of the Almighty. And there in the presence of the Almighty is our greatest joy, our greatest treasure. He alone is worthy of all honor and glory forever and ever. And that's true because of who he is in and of himself. So tonight we're going to sing Amazing Grace after we pray together in our groups. And when you do, I want you to really think about the last line in that verse. It's fitting that Newton ended his famous hymn with this line as he reflects on the amazing, personal, imminent grace of God. And he says this, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. 
but God who called me here below will be forever mine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. This is our glory and our hope. We who have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The aim of our salvation is communion with the triune God. Eternal life is to know him, to worship him. And so may we respond when we think about personal grace towards us with the same overwhelming awe of the God who dispensed that grace in the person and work of his son. Let's pray. God of all glory and honor, the king of the ages, the immortal, invisible, and only God, we praise you for the grace that you've shown us in your son. Because by that grace, we've come to see and to know the splendor of your majesty. By that grace, we know that you are ours and we are yours. So we bless your holy name. Father, comfort us with your steadfast love and faithfulness in our suffering, in our anxious thoughts, and in our fears. Help us to know that you are the only sovereign Lord and that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that we might know you and enjoy you forever, glorifying you in the new heavens and the new earth. Help us to cry out who can separate us from the love of Christ. Help us to rest in the communion that we have with you and forgive us for how often we lose sight of that privilege. Magnify your name. Magnify your works and magnify your attributes in all of our lives. And help us to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forevermore. Amen.